Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the Anatomy of Therapy. We have a great episode today, but before we get into it, I would like to thank everyone who regularly listens to the podcast, and a special thank you to everyone who takes the time to comment, respond, share it, or rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, etc. It is, it is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you are unfamiliar with everything we do, we have a website, www.theanatomyoftherapy.com, where you can see our latest blog posts, subscribe to our new weekly newsletter, and see our available programs and our latest social media clips from Instagram, YouTube, etc. Now on to our show. Today we are speaking with Dr. Courtney Conley and Dr. Jen Perez of Gate Happens. We had a great discussion on gait, or the manner in which people walk, foot, foot issues and their fixes, the importance of the big toe, shoes and toe spacers, how parents can facilitate strong feet in their kids, immediate action steps for improving lower limb issues, and much, much more. We have to get them back on the podcast soon as they provide so much value and they do it in a way I think almost anyone at any level can take away and implement immediately. So, and, and importantly, I will, link in, I will link the YouTube video version of this podcast in the description below as Courtney and Jen used leg and foot models to explain themselves throughout the episode, which I think will help viewers understand these concepts much better. And check the show notes for links on where to find them their courses and memberships that they offer for, for lay people, general public, and also clinicians and professionals, and also where you can follow them um, on social media. And now, enjoy our discussion with Gate Happens. I just want to start right away with uh, talking about, well, first question is why, why Gate and why Feet? Where, why is this so important to you guys? Um, gosh, when I was in school, we had one semester on foot and gait mechanics. Um, and it was with a professor of mine that I just had admired so much. And after that one semester, you like never heard about it again. Hmm. And it's always um, surprised me that our first interface with the ground from an educational perspective was so kind of glanced over from an educational perspective. Um, definitely here like with Kairos and PTs. So when I got out of school, I actually um, worked in a couple orthotic labs and you know, was seeing what we were doing to alleviate foot pain. And it was a lot of bracing. And that's kind of what we knew then. And as I kept seeing more and more patients, I was like, something is not, is amiss here. And then I started going down this functional road of foot and gait and looking at the foot, pretty much how we look at the rest of the body, which is strength, mobility, load, and why we weren't looking at that at the foot. Do you remember your first kind of, I won't say aha moment, obviously you had an aha that the foot matters, but that where you made perhaps like an intervention and then something kind of changed quickly, or you were like, oh, this <laughs> this was it you know yeah, yeah. thing I've always done like in the clinic has always been like I'm the I'm the guinea pig um so I had been training for a couple triathlons and I was in some orthotics that we had made and really aggressive footwear and I had I was battling knee pain and hip pain and then I was like you know what I'm just gonna start from the ground up because we had modified these orthotics so much and I felt like when I was running and even walking that I couldn't feel the ground, like everything was just bracing. Hmm. So I went out for a run um, 
took a, took the orthotics out, still had, you know, what I would call now um, not the correct footwear. It was very narrow. It had a very high heel to toe drop, but without an orthotic, it was much less. And I was like, wow, that kind of feels better. And then I started saying, wow, well, if I don't need the orthotic, why is that? And then I started getting stronger and then I started dropping the heel down and then I started expanding the toe box and I just became more efficient. So just from personal experience, that's how I was like, wow. And then you're, you're like sitting there going, oh my gosh, all those patients come back and let me, you know, but it's called practice for a reason, right? Like we're constantly learning. So it was kind of a fun way to, to look at all of that and really transition and help a lot of people. And did you have to rebuild your feet at all after you started to have these epiphanies or were, did you have this perfect Aboriginal foot at that point? <laughs> no, I actually spent a lot of my time in point shoes when I was a kid, like ballet. Um, I have a very large bunion on my right side, um, Taylor's bunion. So on both sides of the foot, um, it was very weak. Um, my toes were very narrow. Um, when I actually started wearing the toe spacers, I was getting calluses in between my toes because they just wouldn't splay. So they were rubbing on the toe spacer. So it took like, you know, I mean, it was work. Just like you want to strengthen the rest of your body. It takes time to strengthen your foot. And I was literally looking at changing function, um, you know, from the ground up. Gotcha. So we've already dropped two things, I think, uh, that I want to go back on already. Um, you were talking about minimalist shoes and you were talking about a heel raise. Um, mm -hmm. Isn't it the fact, isn't it that a cushier shoe will provide more comfort for the foot? How is it that less of a cush on a heel is actually better for the foot? Oh, this is such a good. So I'm going to grab my foot model here. Okay. You are looking at the world's best shock absorber, which is the heel pad right here. Like the way that calcaneus and the fat pad was designed, it is designed to be the world's best shock absorber. So we were designed to graze the heel when we walk because we have this heel pad there. So when you put cushion, and they've done a lot of research on this, more stuff underneath the foot, you start to change the interface between what your foot wants to feel in the actual ground. I mean, we have 200,000 sensory receptors on the bottom of the foot, screaming for feel. So you put more cushion underneath here, you start to lose the feel. You know, I think the other thing, you know, with that lot of cushion is I can heavy strike, I can reach out, right? Heavy strike at the heel, because you won't feel anything. Yeah, you know, right. going off of that too, with the sensory nerve endings that are on the bottom of the foot. One of the things I talk about with my patients a lot too, is because we're so used to being in this much cushion all of the time, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you imagine the analogy that I use, if you imagine going to the movie theater, right? You go in the movie theater at a matinee, middle of the day, and then you walk back outside. You do that? Well, I mean, not anymore. You're supposed to be working. What's going on? <laughs> I'm like, you're supposed to be here. Well, I am here all the time. But just imagine for the sake of the story that you walk back outside from the movie theater, right? And then I ask them, what's the first thing that you do? You shield your eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Because the sun is like blinding. But was the sun mm -hmm. blinding when you walked into the movie theater? No, it wasn't. And the sun didn't change. What changed 
was we basically turned up the volume on those sensory receptors in your eyes so that you could see in that dark movie theater. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens at the foot. So if we're constantly in these soft socks and cushy shoes, our feet can't feel anything. So they've been turning up the volume, trying to feel anything. So now when you take that away, they are so sensitive. And that feeling is the same blinding sensation that you've got to readjust and re-get used to that and start settling things back down in order to really feel what that ground feels like again. Nice, Dr. Press. You're welcome. Well done. You did. I was surprised you didn't take it further back to like a radio signal that was covered up or like a TV yeah. antenna, which yeah, nobody has it. anymore. Yeah. Right? Like, same thing. It. Yeah. Yeah. Just go take it further back. The no, it's a great reference. That makes perfect sense as to why. Okay. So that's a great. I love it. The cushion, not so great. Toe spacers. You said your toes were stuck together. Does this also have to do with? You're set, you said that the foot is screaming to feel things. Um, how is it that toe spacers help? So when we walk, when I go into, when I strike and I go into full four foot loading, the metatarsals, the toes should splay. Okay. And there's a. Bring it out. Okay. There's a ligament that runs across the forefoot here. Okay. So when the foot starts to splay, it triggers receptors in the ligament that tells the plantar fascia and as well as stability across the foot, hey, we're getting ready to toe off. You better become rigid. Mm. So it's a free mechanism that we have that signals to our brains, hey, yes, we want to absorb shock with pronation, right? That's a mandatory thing in the gait cycle. But we also have to become a rigid lever again to propel forward. So I think when you take that away and you, you know, put your foot into a shoe, you're taking away one of the free mechanisms of the foot. Not to mention you start taking the toes, right? And you start doing this to them, you know? And then your foot ends up looking like a shoe and it doesn't look like a foot. Mm-hmm. And I think the easiest way, like, you know, if you're going to balance, you're going to balance like this, you're going to balance like that. In yeah. walking is single limb support 40% of the time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's balanced when you're walking and certainly single limb support when you're running 100% of the time. I don't know if this is fast forwarding too quickly, but it's where my brain's going. So we're going to go there. With, if you are cheating, let's say in that you're with your toes not spreading out, with you not absorbing appropriately through your heel, does that affect things up the chain? Because I mean, the foot can have problems in itself, of course. Do you notice that? I mean, I'm sure you do. Are there common connections between those, some of those deficiencies and pain further up the chain? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about a lot is the stacking of the ankle. So if you imagine, we talk about the, can we use the model? So we talk about the tripod of the foot. And basically when we talk about the tripod of the foot, there's a couple different reference points that you can use. But what we like to talk about is the center of the heel, the ball of the pinky toe or that fifth metatarsal head and the ball of the big toe or the head of the first metatarsal, right? So if you imagine those three points as essentially this tripod that gives you this solid foundation and then your ankle is stacked on top of it and then your knee and then your hip, right? If I take that big toe and I move it over like this, Okay. I take that tripod and I sweep out one leg from it. What's it going to do? It's going to collapse this way. 
right? And then it's going to take the whole chain with it. So a lot of times when we see that instability of the first ray or of that big toe, the ankle is going to collapse inward with it, which is going to take the knee with it, which can load up the IT band, can affect the hip complex. So it's really a chain reaction and they all work together, but it also goes both ways, right? So whenever we're looking, we're not just looking at what's happening at the foot and how it affects everything above it, but you also have to look at the hip and how it's affecting everything below because it's up to the hip to control how that leg is moving through space and how that foot interfaces with the ground in the first place. So to answer your question, it's all connected. One of, one of, one of, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, Courtney. I think the cool thing about the foot is it's all rate, right? Like mm. it has to be controlled. It's a controlled rate. When we start speeding through things, which is, it could be a lack of eccentric control, you start speeding through pronation, right? So you have pronation at the foot and then internal rotation at the knee and internal rotation at the femur. You start messing around with the rate of that. And then you can start to see, you know, dysfunction up that entire chain. Well, it seems on that note, um, doesn't rate seem to be directly correlated to proprioception or perception of feel, right? Because you talked about out of school, this rigidity of the foot or rigid orthotics and these kind of things. I mean, how would you expect to control rate as you finally take shoes off? You know, I live in, I live in Iceland where everybody wears these, you know, the, the single strap sandal, like the Adidas, like shower sandal, because I, don't, I have no idea why they all have heated floors, but I think it's because it's never warm here. <laughs> But it drives me crazy because I'm, I just think you guys never have this ability to just perceive the ground because you're always in something. But on that note of rate, I feel like doesn't that like doesn't that navicular become a, a quad pod at some point because you can't control the rate because you, you because of these orthotics, basically, we can call anything an orthotic that basically has gone on the foot since since the history of footwear like doesn't that seem to be one of the main reasons why we can't control rate or is there another what is, reason what is quad pod well they're talking about they talk about tripod of the foot so i was I'm like, actually use that. Be, like, uh, we're, you have a, a quad pod yeah. <laughs> like yeah well your your navicular is on the floor you now have a quad pod they, you is, is there another word for four the four? No, very quickly though the let's just the navicular is a bone through kind of near the let's show what let's bring out the yeah there's a navicular it's a big bone uh and rather than the three points you're saying that point comes down and becomes a point of support which is not supposed to be yeah, i don't Got know about it. a point of support but it's it's passively oh. being smashed into, i was just making a joke Impedia. but i was talking about no, no, no. using that joke to talk about control of rate causing issues like that insufficiency around that area, right? Like how, how would they know how to control the body? How would the body know how to control rate when you have something rigid on your foot since you were, since you popped out? Well, I, I think it's difficult, right? And I, you bring up a lot of good points there, especially with that part of the midfoot, because at the mid, like when you're looking at the foot, right? If you were to look at the foot from the back, there's a difference between rear foot pronation in midfoot pronation. So rear foot pronation is when, yes, they can't control their rate of pronation. It almost looks like the heel, you know, doesn't ever get out of eversion. So they can't 
kind of invert the heel and supinate to propel forward. Those foot types can definitely be strengthened. You can work on so many things to control the rate of pronation and get them out of it, right? So pronation isn't bad. We just have to be able to get into it and then get out of it. Midfoot pronation, on the other hand, so when you see the navicular that's on the floor, typically that can be a very, very rigid foot, like a structural variant. And in which case that thing's not getting strengthened. So that's when you want to have the option of doing some type of, you know, accommodative orthotic, for example. So I think, you know, people in our, um, you know, that we have taught and people in our memberships, they always, that's a confusing point because like, wow, this foot looks so flat. Let's just work on calf raises. And you have to be able to say, is it rigid? And if it's rigid, that thing's not going anywhere. You have to help that patient out. Yeah. And just for like an easy reference, one way that you can look at that and see, you know, is it rigid or is it flexible is like she said, the calf raise. So when we watch someone do a calf raise, right, when they go up onto their toes, what we're looking for is that arch to come up. And then we get from behind that turning in of the, of the calcaneus or of that heel, but in that rigid foot type, they won't even be able to get up because this is stuck down. So they'll be able to go like maybe two inches off the ground and they can't physically move that arch because it's stuck where it is. So that's where we're differentiating between, is it flexible? Can we work on it? Or is this completely structural and we need to accommodate it? Yeah, they can just lift their foot up. Like if they're sitting, lift their foot up. If their foot goes from here to here, then it has the potential to do that via strength. If it goes here to here and things are not moving, just a different call. So is midfoot or rear foot pronation um, are they both equally adapted? Like they are something that occurred over time or is there more of a prevalence for one to be more genetic or are they even genetic at all? Midfoot is going to be more kind of, that's how you're born kind of stuff. Unless you start off, right? And the foot just starts to stay in pronation, stay in pronation and you never start to work on the foot. Then down the road, then that thing can become rigid, mm. right? So that's why like early intervention, I think with the kids, you know, I think we were talking about that earlier, you know, every kid on the planet, the first thing they wanna do is take their socks off and feel the ground and drive sensory information to their brains. And the first thing we all wanna do is throw a, throw a rigid shoe underneath there, right? And, you know, that's when I think it starts. The earlier intervention I think is key. Right. So how how do we how do we prevent how do we prevent basically the Vibram five finger uh, lawsuits from occurring? So what I mean by that is they came out, they find some studies that support more minimalist shoes. And they talk about a few studies, maybe some forefoot striking decreases, some kind of ground reaction forces for the knee or et cetera, et cetera. And then somebody writes a book called Born to Run. And then everybody like puts these on and gets fifth ray fractures and dancer fracture, you know, all these different problems and then they get a lawsuit so my point is me i'm sure you guys i'm sure today saw these problems we see this too where they're like i can't i can't even walk barefoot in my house how am i supposed to adapt to some minimalist shoe how am i supposed to take my 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 hokas off so how do we my my main question before we answer that question like how do we how do we deal with the people that can't even tolerate the pressure their fat pad seems to not even want to be pushed on but how do we 
where where I have I feel like I have the answer. I know what you're going to say, but where do you start to prevent all these problems for the people that have these that need bunionectomies and can't walk in bare feet? And where where do we start to prevent these things? I mean, I think you know, I call it kid gloves, right? Like you have to go in with a lot of, you know, education and just start easy because you don't want to turn them off right out of the gates, right? It's not like they're going to come in with a Hoka and you're going to be like, okay, now you're going to go buy a Belenka and call it a day. There has to be some type of, you know, education and transition there. So like what we'll do if someone came in with a higher stack height of the shoe, so like a Hoka, we can take the same stack height, right? But put their foot into a more functional position with a wider toe box, like an ultra. Hmm. So then we can slowly start to change what's happening at the foot because they're, they're going to say, wow, this shoe is so much more comfortable, right? You know, there is that issue of going from a higher heel to toe drop, dropping into a zero. But again, like, Wear these for, you know, 30 minutes. See how you do, see how you feel the next morning and slowly, you know, add time. And while they're doing that, we're starting with basic sensory stuff. Rolling the bottom of the foot, take your shoes off, like toe yoga, right? Lift the big toe, lift the four toes and just driving sensory information to our brains that probably hasn't gotten that much over the years. And, you know, I mean, I don't think this is a hard sell because you put anybody on this planet and you're like, okay, wear this shoe or wear this shoe. It's like, okay, this is going to be more comfortable, right? They just want the, the, the issue I think is the cushion. People but they, are, but they don't look as cute, Courtney. <laughs> I'm sure over she says anybody in the world. I'm like, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, and, and once we do get our patients to really like buy in and let's say they get that pair of ultras, they notice the difference right away. And that's like, like as the clinician, we have to educate them to take that step. But once they take that step, they feel it. And that's where our job gets a little easier because once you feel that like toe freedom and being able to splay the foot and actually feel your calves working for the first time in 10 years, right? You're like, oh, like my feet are supposed to be doing something when I walk. That's weird. And so it's like, I mean, these are literal comments that I get from my patients. And so it's just really, really cool to see that transition from like they're learning from us to they're learning from their own body and they just feel it happening. And then from there, like Courtney was saying, it's a transition, right? So maybe some people, our goal is just to get them in that functional position and ultras is a great place for them. But maybe other people, we're trying to get them slowly into a lower stack height, get them down into a thinner shoe where they can start to feel the ground. So it really depends on the person and where they are because a, a patient that comes in that's in their 20s, they're athletic, they wanna be running for a long time, whatever their goals are, versus a patient who comes in in their 70s and they've had seven surgeries already, those are two very different cases. You know, so we have to meet the patient where they're at, but we want to give the, the foot as much function as we can for that person. Yeah, and I think when you talk about like ultras are running shoe, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I had a patient this morning that had chronic plantar fasciitis and I asked her, you know, she's like, well, I started wearing ultras like, you know, and I, she just transitioned, right? Just right into it. You can't live in Colorado and start running up a hill, right? And go to a zero drop when the foot isn't doing what it should be. 
in your calf, your plantar flexors aren't doing what they should. So yes, like that is a very common um, thing that we will hear is that my calves got sore or my foot started and that's not shocking to anybody. So that's where the education has to come in and be like, yes, we're gonna get you there, but there's gonna be a transition. We're gonna build on strength. I mean, you wouldn't have somebody squat five pounds one day and then 400 pounds the next day. So it's just a matter of progressive load. So we don't want to like turn people off from what we're trying to, you know, talk about, but there is a, there is a progression there. Absolutely. One of the questions I have in terms of, so we're talking about people are listening right now. They're like, so I've got big hokas. I should get into ultras. Um, One of the things I think that is often continuous with foot stuff is incredibly tight calves. If I had a nickel for every patient I saw who was like, I have tight calves, they're tight forever. They'll never be not tight. I stretch them and they just, does that have anything to do with the foot? Well, I mean, what are the other tissues that we always hear are tight? Hip flexor and hamstring, right? My hip flexors are so tight. I'm constantly stretching my hamstrings. If you look at the calf, the hip flexor and the hamstring, more often than not, in our offices, we're going strength with all those guys because tight is very different than short. Tight is your brain going, something isn't stable enough, right? So I'm gonna try to tighten tissue around the joint to try to stabilize you. Hmm. And then we keep stretching for 10 years and the brain's gonna win. So it's gonna come back with more tightness. And that's when you have to start to ask yourself, I gotta switch gears here and start looking at how I can strengthen, especially under a lengthened position, right? When you lower the heel down and control that range, and then you'll start to hear they don't feel tight anymore. Now, I'm not saying stretching your calves and doing all that stuff is like never, you know, recommended, but a lot of the times you have to kind of switch gears and look at how can I strengthen the plantar flexors rather than just keep stretching them. There's um, another thing that's going on uh, on Instagram where um, it wasn't happening, I would say maybe a year ago, but I see a lot of people doing anterior tib exercises. Um, What's the deal with that? So we always say strengthen the anterior compartment to lengthen the posterior compartment. So when you're walking, right, you know, when I go into heel strike, Okay. We want to control that rate. There's that rate word again. I want to control the rate at which the foot hits the ground. Eccentric control here. Then I want to control the rate at which my leg rockers through my foot. Eccentric control back here. Mm. So that's another way to improve ankle dorsiflexion is to strengthen the anterior compartment so that you can work on that rocker that will lengthen the posterior compartment. So yeah, I'm, I'm down with all that. Those are hard, by the way. Like the first They're time really I- They're really hard. Right? And I'm like further away from the wall. And I'm like, get to, you get to like 15, you're like, ah, oh, it's not bad. And then the second you hit 18, you're like, shit. <laughs> There's just a wall that you hit and you're like, gravity just, t- someone turned the dial up on gravity. It's way <laughs> too hard. But no, that does seem like, okay. So uh, quickly, in the rehab setting, I feel like this is a big deal in terms of eccentric stuff. The world, no one trains eccentrically. I mean, if if the, if you're in a CrossFit box, if you're in a global gym, if you're in 
your garage. It's all concentric stuff. It seems in our world, in the rehab world, among clinicians, eccentric is incredibly important, but it's not very easy to train because I feel like, and this kind of goes back to what you guys are talking about with your foot, the receptivity, the connectivity that you need to focus on to do the eccentric motion. Concentric, you could just kind of shut your eyes and blast through a, a squat or a deadlift or an overhead press or something like that. But eccentric work requires you to focus a little bit. The same thing with those toes. Can we go back? We were talking about yoga toes. This might be, sorry, so many questions. I don't want to brush over this. You guys are dropping pearls of knowledge. And by the way, if you want all these pearls of knowledge, there are a number of different uh, courses and memberships. Go to gatehappens.com. It's awesome stuff. You guys have live courses at all? We do. So for clinicians, we have our live gait assessment course. Um, We've got a few locations and we're coming to Canada. So maybe we should go to Iceland. Yeah, maybe Iceland next. Maybe Iceland next. But back to it before uh, you said yoga toes. What means yoga toes? So toe yoga basically is when you have the toes down and you just raise up the big toe without the outer toes. And then you raise up the outer toes without the big toe. And then there's any variation of that. You can lift up the toes and try to lower them down. You can try to like, it's basically just doing like toes movements, right? And a lot of times this is really difficult for people because they haven't had that connection between their foot and the brain in a long time. You know, going back to that, like we shut our eyes, we put our, the like, we cover the volume or whatever analogy you wanna use. When the brain's not communicating, that line of communication is still there, but it's gotten fuzzy. So they try to lift up their big toe and you can see it trying. It does like this like wiggle, right? And I'm like on the ground, like you got it, you can do it, right? Like we're like the big toe cheerleaders over here. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I've never been called that's that. A bump, that's a bumper sticker. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but like. Like, but for, like, I literally will like cheer my patients on and get excited. Because if we're not excited about the big toe, they're not going to be excited about the big toe. Right? And we know that. But uh, going back. Yeah. So basically, it's redriving that connection between the foot and the brain. And when people struggle with that, one of the biggest things is just communicating that they have to be patient right? Because that connection is not going to clear up overnight. And so they're going to have to struggle through that like wiggle for a while, but eventually when they do it, it's going to pop back up and they're going to be like, Oh my God, I did it. And then that's super exciting for them. And that's their win. So it will come with time. You just have to be patient. It's really wild to see. Cause you'll see their fingers, right? Like, yeah. They do it with their hands when they're trying to move their toes. You know, it's like their brain. You're like, I need extension. I need extension. Right. So everything is like trying to extend. I love it. I love it. Um, a little bit more uh, specifically though, we're connecting the toes to the brain. Are there muscles? What are what like what are the muscles that are moving those toes doing for the nerds? So go ahead. So big toe, we're looking at extensor hallucis longus. Outer toes, we're looking at extensor digitorum, longus and brevis. A lot of times too, what you'll see with people is we get toe gripping. So toe gripping is a really, really common compensation pattern. And a lot of times, especially when you're seeing this on both sides, that's Again, going back to that like instability, trying to find stability from the brain. When the brain feels like something's unstable, it's gonna grab the ground with your toes, 
right? And so over time, if we've been doing this for 20 years, right, those tissues are going to start to um, become restricted. So a lot of times we have people massage up in here in the extensor digitorum brevis, which is going to be your shorter extensor. And then we need strength for the opposite set of muscles. So a lot of times what we're focusing on with strength is we're looking for extensor digitorum longus, which is going to lengthen the toes. And then we're looking for flexor digitorum brevis, which is going to press the toes down flat rather than his big brother who's been working this whole time. So a lot of times our focus is gonna be on those two muscles. So the digitorum brevis is a cool muscle, right? Because it like mirrors the plantar fascia, right? And that's a big eccentric player when the foot hits the ground, right? The intrinsic muscles of the foot, that's why like when you're looking at patients who do like short foot and like tenting and the foot stays on the ground, that I call the short foot like the clamshell for the hip, right? It's a good place to start, but that can't be your end game because it's just not functional. Those tissues don't come into play till the heel comes up off the ground, right? So, you know, you'll see like heel spurs in the bottom of the foot, not in the plantar fascia, but in flexor digitorum brevis. And I, my patient this morning, she's like, I have a heel spur in the bottom of my foot. I'm like, okay, they're asymptomatic. Most of them are asymptomatic, right? So that's a, simply a signal to us that, hey, we got to work on strength of the foot. Yeah, and on, and the, on the note of the strength of the foot, I heard you once say, if you don't love the plantar flexors, you need to start loving the plantar flexors. And on that note, why is running or walking or daily life not enough to keep everything strong as far as from the ground up like why why do you I, I think you were hinting that these things need to get stronger and I resonated a ton with that idea of calves hamstrings and hip flexors need strength not just to be stretched it's it's one of my biggest things is just I just think people are too weak in general and that's one of the main reasons they have a lot of issues but why is it not enough just to run like why do you need more load than than that or stress than that I mean, I think if you look at the loads that happen through the foot in a walking gait, you're seven times body weight in a walking gait, right? So when I'm walking, my plantar flexors can put seven to eight times our body weight through the foot. At push-off, the soleus is eight times your body weight, right? So as we age, we know our tendons lose stiffness, which might sound like a good idea, but it's not, right? We want the stiffness of the tendon. That's what propels us forward. Mm -hmm. And if you start to lose that tendon stiffness, you have to work on getting it. And that happens through progressive load. When you start running, those numbers double. They can go up to 11 times, 12 times your body weight through the foot when you start running. If you don't train with more load than simply body weight, then the foot can take a beating there. So I think that's a, that's a good point, especially when we're working on rehabilitation with our patients. I mean, you got to start small, but that progressive load has to happen because a walking and a running gait will just put more load than body weight through the foot. Awesome. I do think um, we have to touch on the big toe. Uh, <laughs> I think Courtney's dog is named Halix, which is the kind of Latin word that we use uh, for the big toe, the great toe. It's called the great toe often as well. I don't know. You can probably 
tell us why it's called the great toe, but why is, is the big toe important? And why do, when I coach, for example, deadlift or squats, I am constantly yelling at the person to keep their big toe down and, and they don't understand why. And I'm like, I don't care. You don't need to know why, because <laughs> I don't have time to explain why a big toe needs to stay down, but your deadlift is going to be more powerful if it stays down. I, I think from an evolutionary perspective, it is one of the things that, <laughs> that allowed us to become a biped, right? Is the changes that happened into the foot. I mean, there's changes that happen onto the top of the hallux, you know, that all have facilitated a bipedal gait. So when we walk, it's that first race stability. I mean, the big toe is responsible for a lot of stability at the foot. 80% stability, way more than the lesser toes. So when we propel forward and I have good stability at that first ray, it basically puts my foot into that rigid lever position so that I can propel forward. That's efficiency, right? So like the calcaneal cuboid, right? We talk about that locking mechanism in a human foot. That's peroneus longus. We're, ta we're, we're talking a uh, some anatomy here. So peroneus longus is a big stabilizer of the first ray, right? So we lock out the foot, the first ray gets to the ground and then we can propel forward efficiently, you know, at that high gear push-off. And a lot of patients will have a very difficult time getting that big toe to the ground and then keeping it there. You know, patients with ankle sprains, right? We know the peroneals are often involved with ankle instability. So those patients, when they try to stabilize the big toe, the, the, the head of the first doesn't drop. So they're trying to stabilize like this without getting that first met to drop. And there goes your tripod. Do you see those people that grip with those lateral toes are often quite weak on the big toe or they're all, are they getting some angulation as well? Oh yeah. I mean, that, that whole kind of gripping the foot, you can just look at and you can see compensations all over the place. You know, we have, no, go ahead, go ahead, finish up. We have a little dynamometer that we'll look at and you can actually look at the strength of FHL and then FDB, right? And it's so consistent that on the side of symptom that you'll, we'll test both of those tissues and it's like, they can't even, they can't even press their toes to the ground. And that's kind of an easy kind of like win for us. Cause I'm, we're like, listen, right. Like you should be able to do this. Right. And then we go into the whole education part of it's not, it's no wonder that the plantar fascia is giving you issues when you're not getting any help from his friends. What's the deal with it, sometimes I'll see my patients and if I look down at their shoes, it seems like their feet are trying to escape laterally from the shoe. Like they're literally like love handles outside of the shoe. Like I see this all of the time. What's the deal with the foot love handles? Definitely calling them from now on. Nobody's going to want that now. So it's like, okay. well, I mean, yeah, that, well, that's the idea. We shame them uh, passively. And then they're like, oh no. Okay. No foot shaming allowed in this office. I'm not foot shaming. I just, what I see, this is just what I see. But feet, people's feet seem to be like tr literally trying to escape from their shoes. What's going on there? You want to take that? So again, when we're walking, we want to be as efficient as possible. 
right? So when I'm moving in this plane, you want to have all that kind of control, right? Of the leg going over the foot. So when I'm walking, if I don't have that good control, I'm going to still get from point A to point B. I'm just going to cheat the system a little bit. So one of the reasons you'll see that, you know, forefoot abduction or love handle, okay, is- Potato, potato. Yeah. I mean, once they go through, if they have poor ankle dorsiflexion, they're just going to spin through it, for example. Because again, that rape thing, right? The early heel rise, because they don't have adequate dorsiflexion, load the forefoot too soon and spin around it. If you go up the chain, lack of hip extension can also do that, mm. right? A lot of, you know, Patients won't have control, proximal stability, you know, the rib cage being stacked over the pelvis, right? So then they kind of can dump forward and then they'll have that kind of waddling gait pattern. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's seen often. You'll see calluses along the big toe. You know, and I always say when, when you see things happening on both sides, right? So you see the waddling gait pattern on both sides, you have to go up the chain. Where's the driver of the car? Because he's not in it, right? Where's the instability coming from that we have this excess load not being controlled by the time we get to the foot? Yeah. And uh, going back to the shoes too, when you have that same gait pattern or when they start to spin out, you'll also see, especially if you see this on one side where one foot's spinning out, if we ask the patient, a lot of times they kick themselves when they're coming through with that same foot. So you say like here in Colorado, I'm like, okay, when you're on the trail, do you get a lot of dirt on the inside of that other ankle? And they're like, how'd you know that? And it's because when they're coming through, they're spinning through with that foot. So a lot of times they'll clip the inside of that ankle. Or if you have athletes, a lot of times they'll cleat themselves on the inside of that ankle. So they'll even have scars there too. So just another thing to look for. Very indicative and diagnostic too, because oftentimes you'll see the wear pattern on the inside lip of the shoe where it's only happening on one side, mm -hmm. right? So that you know when they're going through swing phase, right? Whatever happens in swing phase is a direct result of what just happened in stance phase. Mm -hmm. So if I have poor ankle dorsiflexion, poor hip extension, I'm gonna swing through and you can get that medial heel whip and then they can cuff that inside lip of the shoe. It's kind of cool to look at footwear, I think, when, you know, I'm always like, bring in your oldest pair of footwear. You know, mm -hmm. I wanna see what you're doing here. How much time do we have, John? Oh, we're good. Let's do about another 10 minutes and then we're going to wrap this thing up. And so you guys could get over to gatehappens.com and sign <laughs> up for the courses and the membership because this is a lot of, I mean, the, you guys are giving all the gems today. I appreciate it. There's, yeah. I know there's more, I know there's more, but I mean, I appreciate you guys. Um, do you have, have any questions you want to, yeah, go for it. I have, I'm going to request more gems. I have, I want this, <laughs> I want two elevators uh pitches here one would be so for the adults pretending while well, assuming that you obviously cannot you know work with them you cannot examine them just we're talking about the general public adult who has lower limb problems or foot problems right uh what what would you say like elevator pitch of like hey can you just start doing this today and this is going to help so much of us and then the other elevator pitch is parents to their kids uh, what would you recommend so that you don't have to fight all this stuff in the future, which is definitely the easier route. <laughs> you want to take parents? I'll take kids. Yes. Okay. Um, so you want to start with the basics, right? Things that actually feel good too. So rolling the bottom of the foot, 
right? Just talking to the receptors, right? Um, toe yoga, like we talked about before, getting some dissociation among, among the foot. I love like the lift all the toes, spread them and reach them forward. So you're getting like your extensors and you can start to splay the foot and reach them forward. We'll also, you know, tell patients to take their hand and interlace it within their toes. Okay. I can't tell you how many people are like, I can't get my fingers in between my toes. Right. And I'm like, okay, that means you need to do a lot of this. Right. Cause they're like having to spread their toes to get their hands in there. So you interlace that and then you can start to mobilize the foot right? They can massage in between the tops of the toes. And that's just, you know, we kind of call it a foot kind of basic program just to start to get a little bit comfortable with feeling your foot again. You know, if they're home, you know, and they wanted to start with taking their shoe off, you know, go lightly, start inside a little bit. If you have the ability to get outside, walk on different surfaces, right? Grass, sand, you know, and just start to get your foot to feel the ground. Um, I thought it was an interesting study that um, Irene Davis, she's a big researcher, did because she was talking about transitioning into more minimal footwear in a running gait pattern. And the guy who was interviewing her was like, so do you have them run on like dirt or grass? And she was like, no, I actually have them run on concrete because they're going to run a little softer right? So your gait's going to start to change. So while we would say, yes, walk on sand and walk on grass, you know, don't walk for 10 miles, but you can walk along the sidewalk a little bit and just feel what happens to your foot because the strike will change. It will get softer, you know, because it has to. And then those are the small adaptations that, you know, you can start to make. Awesome. And then as far as the kids go, so number one is, is let them be barefoot, right? Like so many parents are like afraid of letting their parent, their kids go barefoot. And so just let the kids go barefoot, let them stay barefoot as long as they can let them feel the ground. Like Courtney was saying before, what's the first thing a kid does when you put shoes on, they try to take it off because they're trying to feel the world around them. So let them go barefoot, let the feet splay and then vary their movement, right? A lot of times a big problem that we have is um, specialization of sports too early is a big thing, right? So if they're only doing one movement over and over again, they're only going to develop towards that movement. Movement. So allow them to play outside, get them to do different things. A lot of times um, an, an exercise that we'll use for our pediatric patients is animal walks. So I want you to hop like a kangaroo. I want you to bear crawl. I want you to like move like a jaguar, right? Crab and walk. It, a crab walk. It, it's just varying their movement and getting the muscles to fire in different ways and firing the neurology in different ways. So that's one of our favorites. And then the other thing that I would say as far as kids go is when you do put them in shoes, make them flexible, make them wide toe box. They do make flexible wide toe box shoes for kids. Um, right size, right size. That's what I was going to say. The biggest, biggest thing that we find is that most kids are wearing the wrong shoe size. Most kids, most like wow. the majority. And so the problem with that is 
when you're wearing a shoe that's too small, again, you're going to have to pull away from that shoe. And then we start developing that toe grip at a very early age, right? And so allowing the foot to move. And the problem with that, we understand is kids grow fast, right? So first, when they're really small, they're not going to communicate to you that the shoe's too small. So you've got to check really frequently, but also it means that you're going to be switching out those shoes pretty, like pretty quickly. So we understand that that's an investment, but it's so huge for the foot function of the kids, because if they're in a shoe that's too small, again, you go back, back to that tripod and you're going to start seeing them falling one way or the other. And then we've got parents reaching out to us all the time saying, my eight-year-old has, you know, the navicular on the ground kind of pronation. And it's like, all right, we've got to address this. So prevention is key with that. Yeah. I, I it's love crazy that. that. So many kids have come in here with you know, foot issues. And we're the, the very first thing we say is just they're in the wrong size shoe. Hmm. Right. But uh -huh. the kids can't relay that. Right. So it's, right. you yeah. got to be constantly checking like every three months you're looking at the shoe. And with the older kids, the problem is they like the shoes. Like I can't tell you how many times, like the tell kid comes the crease, in. Tell the crease story. The which story? The Nike crease story. Oh God. Okay. I'll tell that one too. But this one was like the kid, the kid came in and I think this was like an eight-year-old maybe. And we, I measure the shoe and I'm like, okay, this shoe is like two full sizes, too small. And he looks at his mom and he's like, well, I knew they were too small, but I really, these are my favorite shoes. And I knew that they didn't make them in bigger sizes. So I was going to have to get rid of them. And it's like, cause those were his like cool shoes. So it's like, that's the struggle with the older kids. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the crease story, this was very interesting. This kid, I believe this was years ago. I believe he came in with back pain. And so I'm watching his gate. Um, he's walking up and down the hallway and I'm like, why is he walking like that? Like, it's just a very like, strange gate. Like, he's just like, like not moving. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, so I literally said, I said, why are you walking like that? And he's like, well, I was like, well, why aren't you pushing on your feet? And he's like, because I don't want to crease my Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. And I looked at his mom and I was like, tonight when he's sleeping, you're going in and creasing every single day. <laughs> that's that's so funny. And so he, funny. he hated me after that, but I was like, no, you don't get to walk like this. That's so many amazing. people, like when we post sometimes about my Belencos that, you know, kind of look like a Nike, people are like, don't crease, don't, don't crease the Nike. Do not yeah, crease, don't the, crease Nike. the Nike. God. Sneakerheads. Yeah. I didn't even know that was, I didn't even know that was a thing, but uh, yeah. Did you, you ever have kids? Like when I was a kid and growing up in Arizona, I, I always wanted to wear my cleats around. I don't know. I just remember doing that as a kid. Like I just thought it was cool to wear my, my, my soccer cleats all the time. Like yeah, that's probably a terrible idea. And I, I'm going to blame my mom for that entirely, but yeah, we wouldn't recommend that. That's not on the top of our list. Though. Yeah. <laughs> No, man, this has been amazing. I really love all the dialogue that we've had today. Maybe we'll have to get y'all back on and dig a little bit deeper. I've got more burning questions. Um, if you guys haven't, obviously at the beginning, follow them at Gate Happens. Uh, a lot of the things that they were explained today actually are on the page. So if you need a visual and you didn't hear it because you listened to the podcast, go to their Instagram, follow them. We should have them in our stories as well. So find them, follow them, do some of the stuff. Um, thank y'all so much for coming on. Thank I really you guys appreciate too. it. We, I've, you know, obsessively been looking through all your stuff too. And it's, I'm grateful for you guys. You put out good, good content and thank you for having us really. Yeah. Thank yeah, you so much. Awesome.
It's been fun. We'll have to do it again. All right. Thank y'all. Take care. And scene.